Welcome to Vermont Artists and Authors, where we interview great storytellers and artists from the amazing Green Mountain State. I'm your host, Barney Smith of StoryComic.com, and we are honored to have with us the inspiring storyteller and acclaimed author of Called, a memoir, Mark Redmond. Hello, Mark. Barney. Thank you for having me on. You are a professional storyteller. There you go. It's true. It's, it's true. true. Yeah, so I am a professional storyteller. I've actually been paid money. I've been paid money to tell stories. I was paid last week to tell a story. There you go. And it's all kind of like they're all kind of like fomented from the your your moth it, it, when you're on the moth. And that was that was 10 years ago. That was back in 2013 that you're on the moth. That's so if you listen to the moth, which a lot of people do, you know, at the end, they always say, if you have a good story to tell, call 1-800-THE-MOTH and leave a two minute message. So I did that in 2013, you know, didn't think anything of it. And then about six months later, I get an email. Hey, uh, I'm a producer in New York City uh, for the moth. And uh, we got your we got your two minute thing. We're coming to Burlington later this year. Call us. Maybe we'll put you on stage. So I literally called the producer and she said, said, tell me the story. So I told the story over the phone. She goes, okay, you're in. I said, what do you mean I'm in? She goes, we're going to have five storytellers at the Flynn Theater. uh, And uh, the people flying are our best storytellers from L.A., New York, Chicago. And you're the Vermont storyteller. You represent Vermont. So now both. So you're from the Northeast Kingdom. There's a famous That's- person who lives in the Northeast Kingdom. Do you know who it is? Was that the one that you also mentioned in one of your interviews? That that was the second person that was Charles also- Lindbergh's daughter. <laughs> Reeve Lindbergh lives in the Northeast Kingdom. So they had me, I, she, and I were the two Vermont storytellers. Isn't that funny? She told the story about her father, the famous aviator. So that's how it started. A, a two-minute phone call that I left, you know, two-minute message. Right. And then, God, now I've been on stage in Montreal, Brooklyn, Boston. It's just taken off, you know? So I'm curious. So, Mark, what is it? A lot of people, as they say, it, it seems human nature to tell stories because mm-hmm. stories kind of combine us together, kind of creates a shared narrative and, and gives people – um, the, the opportunity to understand that they're part of something larger than themselves. What is the essence of a story and how do you, how can somebody make an anecdote into a good story? You know, it's funny, you know, the moth will say everybody has at least one good story in them, which I definitely, everything, everything, everybody's got a hundred good stories in them. Right. What's the essence of a good story? You know, the kind of the guru in Vermont is the producer of the moth in Burlington, Sue Schmidt. And she always says, the story has got to tell transformation. What was the transformation? That's what you have to get to, you know? How did the event or the conversation or what you were involved in, how did that transform you? That's what you've got to get across to the audience to tell a really good story, you know? The story that you told Mm -hmm. um, that was actually on The Moth was about some of your experience with uh, with a church that you you, you already kind of made a preconceived notion of what the right. church was all about. That's right. I go in, it's this church. I'm not going to say which one it is, but, you know, it's kind of like one of these mega churches that's kind of, you know, somebody had called it the Hollywood church, you know. So I went there to pick up some donations for Spectrum, 
And I went in there like, oh, man, I'm going to get in there and get out of there as quick as I can. These people are a bunch of phonies, you know. Yeah. And just as I'm about to, to go, the parent, one of the adults says, oh, Mr. Evan, before you go, there's a little girl here. She has, she has something special for you. And this little nine-year-old kid drags this duffel bag up in front of me and puts it up in front of me. And I opened it up, and it had soap and toothpaste and all that. And she looks at me, a little kid, and says, my family wants to give this to you to give to a boy at Spectrum in honor of my brother who just died. And so I opened up this duffel bag and there was a Bible in there. And it was I opened up the Bible and it had a, a card and it said, always remember. And it said, God is watching over you. And it has a picture of a brother. And it's a little nine-year-old girl. I'm expecting to see a little boy, but it's like a teenager you know like a young man like we work with at spectrum and i leaned over to the uh, adult and i whispered to him i said how how did her brother die and he whispers back heroin overdose mm. you know so that was the transformation for me like oh my gosh here i am in there can't wait to get out of there kind of making fun of these people in my mind you know they're a bunch of phony christians and you know what? Some of these people are just in awful pain, terrible pain, you know? And if this church is where they want to go for healing and for hope and for peace, you know, what What right do I have to judge that? And then I don't. I have none. So that was, there's more of the story, but that was the, the transformation, you know, right. about how easy it is to judge people and institutions in different places. But, and a lot of my stories are about that, about how we, we 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 suppose one thing. We see somebody who's homeless or a prisoner, you know, we immediately brand them in our minds. But but once we learn more about the person or the circumstances, it can really change the way we look at people in situations. How how important is storytelling for like from the advocacy lens? It's really important, you know. I mean a lot of my, you know, we're primarily a service organization. Last year, we took care of 1,280 kids who were either homeless or addicted or, you know, living in, in the woods or whatever. But a lot of my work is in the legislature, too. I'm in there a mm -hmm. lot, you know. And we, right now, we're about to release thousands of homeless families and teenagers from hotels, which is very sad. Um, but when I'm in the legislature, the stories, that's what, you know, because those legislators and my wife used to be one, they're, they're listening to people all day, all day, statistics and numbers, you know, ah, they must glaze over. But if you can get in there and tell them, you got to tell them statistics and stuff. But if you can tell them, hey, and let me tell you about what happened to this young person who I know, you know, I think that has a tremendous, that get that cuts through all right. the other voices that they're hearing all day. And, and so... To take me a little bit to talking about your book um, called. Yes. How different is writing a book from telling a story? Yeah, that's a good point because it is different. Hmm. So the book came out of, you know, I started telling these stories and then I was on stage in Montreal. Then I got picked to do a one man show on Broadway, which was cool in 2019. Then I did a one-man storytelling show at the Flynn Theater a week after that. And I remember I went over to American Flatbread with some friends after my show. And this woman said to me, when do we see these in book form? You know, when do we see these? And I was like, that's like the fifth person 
none of whom are related to each other to say that to me. So to me, that's a sign, you know, like, <laughs> you know, I had tapes and videos of a lot of my stories, but you're right. It's different. You just don't take it word for word and plop it in on a page, right? You've got to build it up differently. So they tell a lot of the story. This not all. There's many stories that are in the book I've told on stage, but it's different. It's a di- it's a different medium, right? So you have to do it. So I had a lot of people. I had a lot of people look through the book and advise me and do this and revise. So this the meat of the stories are in there, but it's definitely a different medium. So you really have to work at it. So talk to us a little bit about that. How is it different? Like, what are some of the things that you had to expand on more scenes or did you have to cut down and put in different perspectives? How did that work having to um, Because I think the other thing with telling a story, you have to, it's about transformation, but also I've learned start with the action. So I told a story on a, uh, at a conference last Friday about going to rescue a suicidal girl. If I was going to write that, I would write like, so I was director of this program. It was located here. And then we had to, but instead I started off, it's eight o'clock in the morning and I'm having my coffee and the phone rings and the supervisor says, Mark, you need to get over here now. That new girl, that new girl who's suicidal, she just ran down. She ran out the woods towards the train tracks. You know what I mean? So that wouldn't work to write it like that, you know? You'd have to set it up. So that's kind of the difference. I like in my stories to hook. If you can start with the action, you hook people right in. Wow, they're going to listen to you for the next five or six minutes or whatever it is. Versus in writing, I find you have to set it up more, you know, mm. and then and then ease a bit and then get into the action. You're reading it as a script as compared to in a novelization form. You have to create the setting. Right. And get when you're talking from a storytelling perspective, you're actually interacting with the reader and that's right. Sense. That's right. Or what you have to do. Yeah. But it was good. It was a great process. Also, you know, when it coincides, COVID hit and no, none of it. I said, nobody go to work at spectrum. Everybody work from home. Unless, you know, we have a shelter with homeless kids. Those people had to go to work. You know, right. the, 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 what's the necessary workers, you know, like the, we were like that, but Said everybody else who's admin like me stay home. So all of a sudden I had one hour free that instead of driving in in an hour, I was like, well, I'm gonna use this to write my book. I just found two spare hours a day. So I call it my COVID book. I really wrote the book during COVID, you know, so it made it easier. So yeah, so talk to us a little bit about that. How uh how was uh, working and trying to create and write inspirational and writing some of these thought-provoking stories, how did either COVID inspire or or kind of drain you from that? COVID was so, you know, it, was, it came upon all of America so quickly, right? It was like something we would read about in Italy. Then the next week we're reading it about here. And then it was right. Then like March, whatever it was, seven, it was like, bang, you know? Right. And all of a sudden, we're at Spectrum. I'm like, oh, my God, we have 26 homeless kids living with us with shared bathrooms, shared kitchens. It's Remember, it was all nursing homes in the beginning. I'm like, I'm running a nursing home for teenagers. Like, right. And we didn't know how. Nobody had masks. And nobody had. We didn't know how it was transmitted. You know, so it was, it was scary as heck. You know, it right. really was. So I was involved with all of that. 
and then at the same time, you know, then I'm doing, I do a lot of fundraising. I got to do that. And, you know, there's all kinds of stuff trying to keep, keep our board of directors together and to write the book. So I really, I'm a morning, I get up early anyway. So I really was able to write a lot of the book early in the morning, you know, or then late at night when things calm down. So in a way it gave me the time, you know, otherwise I would be staying work and working late but we couldn't none of us were allowed to go in you know unless you were were taking care of the kids so in a way it was it was covid was sad it was terrible look at all the lives that were lost but it did provide opportunities for certain things you know right your book called is this as you mentioned it's called it's a memoir is this a collection of all of your stories or is this new stories that maybe some of your fans or people that follow you might notice that this is actually something brand new yeah this a lot of it is new i took i took a lot i took the stories you know and uh and worked in them but then i added a lot of other stuff too i found i thought maybe i should just make it all stories but that's now let me make it a memoir you know i dedicated it to my parents and and talked about you know my because everybody asks they're like how did you get into this work you know and I'm like, I'm still trying to figure that out. My parents still think this is a phase I'm going through <laughs> after 42 years, you know? Right. I studied business. I had a job on Madison Avenue, the apartment, the car, the suit. You know, like this was not in the cards that I'd spent 40 years working with homeless teenagers, gang members, substance abuse, mental health. That was not, that was not it. So that there was kind of a cool story like how you take someone who was working on madison avenue and now he's working full-time helping homeless teenagers and stayed at it and you know there's wonderful things that happen one of the stories is about i still hear from this i was his counselor in 1981 he was a homeless 19 year old kid i still hear from him all the time first 15 years he was mostly in prison i would go visit him in prison send him, write him letters, you know, and now he has his own business. I, I go every five years to his Narcotics Anonymous meeting. I'm the godfather to his little daughter, you know, mm. and there's ter terrible stories too. You know, I had a worker get killed. I had a worker get stabbed to death by a kid high on crack cocaine. You know, I wrote about right. that. So um, one of my workers was shot and killed by a cop and I had to go identify the body, you know? Right. So it's like, it would have been easy to write a, a book where like everything turned out great every time and every kid was helped and everybody, but it's not, that's not the reality of what this work is, you know? Right. And there's some, there can be some real disappointments and real sometimes tragedy even. And I felt to be honest, I had to include all that. How important is it to tell those tragic stories as a sense of transformation? Because I think even when there's, I think even when there's tragedy and it's sadness and we want to avoid it, there's still something to be learned from that. There's, you know what I mean? Like, I believe that so strongly. Like, I think, you know, like even that young man who killed one of my workers, he stabbed to death a 65 year old nun. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, this was front page news in New York. He's still in prison and I still send him a Christmas card and a birthday card every year, you know, mm. and like he did a terrible thing. He belongs in prison, but I also feel like he's still a human being, you know? Right. And I remember I visited him in prison while I happened to drive by the prison that he was in in upstate New York. 
I thought, oh my God, he's in that. I think that's where he is. And I went in to see him and I said, so how often do you get visitors? And he goes, you're the first person to come and see me in 10 years, you know? Wow. I know, right? I was like, oh my God, you know? So like he did a terrible thing, but I think, you know, there's that saying, none of us should be defined by the worst thing that we've done, you know? We're, bit, we're all bigger than that and different than that. So for me, even when there's, you know, it didn't work out with the youth. It's bad. There's this story about a young man that I wrote about. Love this kid. Uh, he wanted to be a Marine. Homeless kid living in a car. Lived at Spectrum. Wanted to join the Marines. Oh, I want to be a Marine. I was okay. You know, he joined the Marines. We He finished boot camp. We sent someone down there because he didn't have any family to be there when they graduate, you know. And then he left the Marines, like, I don't know, two months later, homeless in Burlington. We kept looking for him. And then I'm reading the Burlington Free Press online one night, and he, he shot himself in the head, killed himself. Mm. Mm. And uh, I talked about going to the funeral, you know, and meeting his family and how I got a letter from a neighbor, you know. And the neighbor wrote this letter and said, you know, they wrote in the obituary, you know, from the loving family of, you know, I'll make the Smiths. And she said, that boy didn't have a loving family. I lived next to her. He didn't grow up in a loving family. The only loving family he had was you and your coworkers at Spectrum. So like, it was a terribly sad thing for that young man to take his life. But the transformation was, he was loved and felt loved while he was with us. You know what I mean? And, and he knew that. So that's what I try and dig. Like, even when there's tragedy in this work, there's still there's still something there, you know. And I wrote, there's a picture of him. You walk into Spectrum and there's these pictures of kids from years ago. And there's a pictures of kids having dinner together laughing. And he's in that picture. Everybody else walks in that building. Oh, it's a bunch of kids. They don't, they don't know him. It was so long ago. But, like, I look at it occasionally, I think. Yeah, he was happy then. You know, he was happy mm. when he was with us. He took his life, you know, months later. But he was, ha for a short time, he was happy. So that that makes me feel good and it means something to me. All right. Now, what advice would you give somebody that's looking at wanting to go into storytelling? I would say find other people. There's like storytelling groups now. You can go to oh. class. You know, there's different from the comedy club. Comedy is different, right? This is, you know, story. And I will run by. So if I'm going to, like when I did my one person show on Broadway, the one, you know, like I ran through all the stories. I trust my wife. She's a good storyteller. She just told a story on stage in Massachusetts. My son. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to run this through. And there's a group of us. We've all gotten to know each other through the moth. None of us know each other, you know? Hmm. And I'll get them to go, hey, come on, I'm going to get pizza. And I'm going to tell you my, I'm going to run through. And they'll be like, that one wasn't so good. <laughs> you know, or add this. So you don't need that. Now that's running too long, you know? So the best is the guy he ran the Flynn for years. I love him, John Kalaki. He was, then he was in the legislature. He walks around with a cane. So he went to my one person. He gave me all this advice. He goes, if you don't follow this advice, man, and I'm in the audience, you're going to see a cane flying, <laughs> flying through the air, headed, headed for your head. <laughs> so, so that's that's my thing would be get advice, you know, run by run by people you trust, you know. And right. they may say, yeah, it's fine as it is. Or they may say, you know, add this, change this, and, you know, tweak this here, you know. And that, that can really – 
That can make a good story. The people at the Moth, when they first picked me to do it, I had to have a weekly coaching session. And I was wow. like, every week I got it. This is one I'm for. Oh, my God. Then the day before, then a rehearsal. But I'll tell you, every change they reckon, you know, looking back at it, they took a good story and really turned it into a great. They've played that story three times on their podcast. It's That's highly unusual. You know, but the coach they gave me was so good. She was so good, you know. So what do you prefer doing now? Do you like do you like telling a story to an audience or do you prefer writing it down and having it to be more intimate than that with a reader? So I love both. You know, I still write columns. I write I write columns for different magazines. I do editorials for Vermont Digger, you know. I love that. I love to write. I love to see my name in print. And I love to, I love to think I'm making it. If it's a political thing, I'm making an impact. You know, we just had an increase in funding for homeless kids because of an op-ed that I wrote, which makes me feel good. So uh, I like that. But I love the story. Like when I was on stage at Killington a few weeks ago, man, I love I just love that. I love interacting with the audience, making them laugh, making them gasp, you know, I love that. The feedback, you get that feedback, you know, you can see why some actors love being on stage versus movies. Like it's real, it's right there. People are laughing or they're yeah, or they're gasping. And I just I just get I just love that. I think that's great. You know, being in front during the storytelling, it's uh it's a passive form meaning like it will continue on whether or not the audience is that the audience member is watching it or not. Right. But as a book, as an author, that book doesn't read itself. So does it also seem like there's also a point where you have to be more proactive in engaging with a reader as compared to engaging with an audience member? I think so. I think so. You know, you've got to hook, you got to, yeah, it's in a way it's right. You have to hook the reader, right? You know, books, right. you know, you got to hook it. I just read a great biography of Lyndon John. I love history. The biography the, Robert K. Rose, such a famous uh, author. And, uh, he hooked me first chapter, you know, like uh, about the assassination of JFK and J you're on the plane and the limousines and the secret. Like I was, it, this book was like this thick. I could not put the book down because he wow. hooked me right from the start. Boom. He had me in there. And I was like, oh, I got to read this. I said to my wife, I, I hope he lives. He's written the fifth volume. He's like 93. I'm like, I hope this guy lives long enough to write the final version. <laughs> There's a documentary out about him right now called Turn Every Page about how he and his editor, uh, you can stream it. It's such a good documentary about how an author and an editor work together, you know, to create right. a book. And so how about that? How is working with an editor different than, as you say, working with some fo advice folks that are doing storytelling? So for me, I didn't, I picked up what's called a line editor just to go through like every period and the commas and all that stuff. And this is so, I spent a thousand on that. Then I had all these people look at it and someone said to me, you will still have in the finished product a, a typo or something. I said, impossible. I've read this thing. So, and turn up, my son calls me. Hey, dad, page 36, fifth line. <laughs> <laughs> I found three typos in Robert Cairo's book, and that's won the National Book Award. <laughs> so, so, but I didn't hire. And then I, instead of having like ordinarily, right, you would pick an editor. Right. I didn't do that because that costs money. 
But I send to a lot of people, I, you know, friends of mine who are really, I consider literary people who really appreciate good literature and, you know, gave it to them and said, you know, one is Stephen Kiernan, very famous Vermont author, good friend of mine. He read it, you know, and it was great. People were very, you know, this worked, this didn't work. I'd get rid of this, you know, shorten this chat. It really helped a lot. So I didn't have an editor, but I had a bunch of different people who I trust who really helped me craft it into a better book. Okay. Um, and so what were some of the things that you learned about when you, when you wrote this book that made you a better storyteller? Hmm. That's a good question. What did I learn writing the book that may be a better storyteller? I think I've gotten better at getting to the action quicker, you know, getting, you know, hooking people in. I think I've learned to do that. I think, and then, you know, it's funny. Somebody said, I was asked a question on this panel last week, you know, what would you, what advice would you give to other storytellers, people who want to tell stories? And I was like, write stuff. I keep, I literally keep like a little pad with me, you know, like, cause we all, we think we're going to remember these things, but people can say things or we do things, but, Oh, I'm going to remember that. That could be a good story. But like, I'm like, write it down because you're probably going to forget. You know, I tell the story of like, we have mentors at Spectrum, adults who are volunteers. We match them up with homeless kids and at-risk kids. And I was with some woman, you know, and she was saying, oh, I have a mentee. And, you know, the kid's 15 and parents are both in prison. And we do all stuff together. And she said, you know what my mentee said to me recently? I said, oh, what'd she say? She said, my mentee said to me, ever since I met you, I've become braver. And in the back of my mind, I was like, wow, what that woman just said to me is really important. And that's a story right there. So I finished the conversation and I ran right to my car where I keep a pad and a paper and pencil. And I wrote down, ever since I've met you, I've become braver. And I've used that story on stage, you know, because so I said, that's my advice. Write this stuff down. Write these incidents down. You know, maybe you won't use all of them, but like we're humans and we forget. And then, you know, and you so that would be my advice that, you know, write, write experiences down as much as you can. You, you almost have like a list and some of them might correspond with each other. Right. Uh, will complement each other and make both stories stronger for Yes, them. exactly. Exactly. When it comes to the stories, do you, as we mentioned earlier a bit, do you actually script anything out or make notes? Or when you actually get up in front of a stage or an audience, do you actually have a script written out or is it just like bullet points? How so that that's happen? a good point. So the more, if you do the moth, they are so strict. You can't, you can't go up there with a scrap of paper, you know? And the other ones I've been on stage for another one called risk. They don't want, no, they, they, but I don't memorize either, you know? So I will write like bullet points. I'm good with that. And then I will record it, you know? I'll, and then play it on the way into work, play it on the way back to work, play it on, you know what I mean? You're not memorizing it though. Because to me, the most important thing is the emotion. There are times I'll tell a story and then Elena, I'm like, shoot, I forgot like, this one power this one line or you know or one segment of it but i'm like you know what that's all right because the emotion was there you know i didn't mm -hmm. if you memorize it right 
I, I think you're sacrificing too much of the audience contact, you know? But this way, the pa- the passion is what people are, that's what they're locking into. If you're mm. passionate about the story, they're going to be passionate. So I, I try not to memorize, but I will write bullet points and then I'll, I'll record it. But again, I don't want to do it word for word, you know, and sometimes I'll even surprise myself on stage. <laughs> I'll blurt something out that just occurs to me there that'll add like, you know, add to the story. So I like having that that freedom. And you don't know how the audience is going to react to it. There's things I think, say that I think of the audience. Well, that was the funniest thing. So when I had to tell them all, first time I was on stage with Flynn, they said, you have 10 minutes to tell that story, okay? There's a guy with a violin right behind you. He's got a timer. When I hit 10 minutes, he's going to start playing. You better. I was like, it's all right, man. I practiced a million times, nine minutes, 40 seconds. You know what? I didn't count on Barney. I told, the I, laughter I, and, the, yes. and the things. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I said something funny. And one person starts laughing in the film and the whole row in the whole audience. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> But you bring up a good point, though. Like, once your book is written, it is written. Like, you can't tweak it after the fact. But with an audience, you can see which things land better than others. And so how how much has your initial story that you told at the Moth, how much has that changed or tweaked based off of, say, geography or audience or yeah. or any of that? It has changed because I've told that story a bunch of different times, you know. There are definitely things that I, I thought were funny and they didn't, people didn't laugh that I've taken out. And then there's stuff that I thought was just okay and I got a big reaction. So I'm like, okay, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna add, we're gonna, you know, really put embellish that one. You know, that one hit the mark. I didn't think it would, right. but it did. So it's so funny, it's so hard to tell. You can't always tell, right? With an audience. And or every audience is different too, right? So one right. audience might gasp at something you say, another audience might just sit there, you know. But I've kind of learned like there's certain one, like there's one point, you know. Oh, oh! I said I'm getting ready to leave this church, you know. And I look at my watch and I said, you know, great man. I'm thinking ten minutes now. I can go play golf. I mean, go to my regular church. And people always <laughs> laugh. People always laugh at that. They like that. <laughs> so if, if people wanted to learn more about you where's the best place they could go to so i i when i did the book i created a website mark redmond books plural books.com <laughs> because i did i had a prior book about 20 years ago and really the person who did my website said you should uh it's out of print now but uh she said you'll write more books so mark books.com so that would be the best okay. place you know and about to learn about me and about, you know, it's got some of my other stuff on there. So that's the best place. MarkRedmanBooks.com. So are you working on another book? Not yet. It's funny you say that. I'm not working. I've written some more columns, you know, but I think I gotta, I gotta, I gotta get my money back. You know what I do think of? And I, before I did this, I paid somebody, an artist to illustrate it. Somebody has said to me, this book could be a good graph, not a graphic novel, because it's not a novel. It could be a good graphic memoir, you know? Okay. So if I could sell enough of this one (laughs) and use the proceeds, I would love to pay. I I think that'd be cool, especially, 
I, just that one story of the one guy who I was his counselor 42 years ago, and I used to visit him in prison. And I'm right. like, that story, that could be a graphic memoir right there. Right there. Right. That would be a yeah. huge, that would be a huge young adult, I believe, a huge young adult hit. About right. two people from such different. He grew up in the projects, cocaine addict, everything, you know. I grew up in the lily white suburbs, you know. And yet we're like best friends. We like text each other every day. He came to my wedding, you know. That right, right there is kind of an incredible, that would be an incredible graphic story, I think. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. But so listen, Mark, you got to come back on then when you get that. When you get I that will. Published then. Love yeah. to come back on, Barney. Love yeah. to. Yeah. Love Perfect. To. Yeah. I really All right. Well, thank you so out. much, Mark. Thank you. Thanks for having me on, Barney. I really appreciate it. You're welcome.